There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators. But it's a no-cut special of Unreliable Narrators, and we don't have a book or a movie or a song to talk about today because mostly Raymond's fault. Mostly because Sophie hasn't read the book. Okay. <laughs> why is this Ray? Wait, wait. Explain why this is Raymond's fault. That's what I want to know. I didn't know this was Raymond's fault. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't even trying to obfuscate. I just, I had it in my head somehow this was happening because you were too busy and I forgot that I hadn't read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, it's both of our faults, I guess, in that case. Um, I think that's pretty generous to me. It is true. I didn't read Silence in time because I got really busy and Raymond also is pretty busy and we, we are recording this the night before. If you're listening to this on Friday, March 11th, 2022, we are recording this on Thursday evening, <clears throat> March 10th, 2022. So that's why this is a no-cut special. Uh, I will barely edit this. I just want everyone to know right now. <laughs> yes, but also next week, if you're listening in Washington State, you can come to our high school play. Uh, directed by yours truly, Leaving Iowa, premiering March 17th and 18th. Uh, so, That's right. Yep. Go see it. It's pretty pretty great. But that's... Um, Maybe we'll put something that, about it on the Instagram. That's just the local news. Um, let's talk about, about the big news. The big news. Oh, yes. So we need to talk really about what's happening in the world right now, Sophie. Uh, like this morning, the sun rose. That was big. Um, really? Yes, it was in fact a cosmic event. So, like, that's. G.K. Chesterton said something about that. Yeah, yeah. Even he wrote about it, and that was like a hundred years ago. That's how big it was. It's like I'm looking up the quote. Time traveling implications here, but um, yep. So that's what's going on, and uh, are you ready for the quote? Yep. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough... Oh, uh, pop-up. Uh, God is strong enough to... <laughs> but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Yeah. I remember reading that quote when I was um, a very old young person in college, uh, and so that was a, that 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 was a good a good reminder to to delight in doing the same thing over and over again. I think we have all grown very old lately, 
I some certainly I, agree. I felt like a hundred years old this morning. So I did too. Yeah. But also, okay, I have a question though, because the whole exulting and monotony thing, you are very you're more a person of routine than I am. Mm-hmm. And keeping a schedule and doing things at the exact same times is important to you in a way that it's not important to me. Do you feel like that's exulting and monotony? Ex- the the fact that I like to like routines. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I guess I guess that's true. I mean. Hmm. I I'm a kind of a a, a person. I just like. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a very habitual person to the point where it just like drives my family members crazy, um, especially my mom. <laughs> but uh, like, you know, I'll always want to do the dishes at the same time of the day and uh, eat meals at the same time of the day and, and, and go to bed at the same time of the day. Like, you know, I, I whenever when I read that part in The Hobbit, uh, Tolkien's The Hobbit, where he says the Hobbit was found, fond of regular meals, plenty and often. I was like, yes, I I relate to that. And yep. um, I had a friend who was a big Tolkien fanatic, fanatic, and he made the. Uh, <clears throat> oh, okay. So he was talking. There was some sort of he was having a debate with somebody about how the point of the Lord of the Rings was to go on adventures, right? That's what Bilbo mm-hmm. learned, like, you know, there and back again. So he was trying, they were, they were trying to convince my friend to go on a, on an adventure like Bilbo, you know. And and my friend who was a Tolkien fanatic made, turned around and made the argument that he thinks that actually the point of Middle Earth or the point of Lord of the Rings is actually the opposite of that. It's actually anti-adventure. And hmm. it's about because because it actually glorifies and celebrates uh, uh, a sort of pastoral vision of Victorian England. Uh, so Tolkien was drawing from Beowulf, right, first and foremost, mm-hmm. and was very much a medievalist. But when you look closely at the kind of home that he created in the Shire, it's very much dated in the 19th century, which is interesting. I mean, their diction is very 19th century and, you know, they have things like pipes <clears throat> and they wear and they wear vests and um, they have 19th century agricultural technology. So it's actually not as clearly anchored in, you know, the medieval times as you would think. And that's interesting uh, mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's very much a you know a, a mythological purist as Tolkien was, he was right. definitely mixing time periods up a lot. Um, but it seems to me that there was a there was a big the point part of the point that was being made there is that he was trying to celebrate the little things uh, in in an age and he was writing the twentieth century he was celebrating an age which people at that time had learn to to look down on you know they they i mean there's lots of things that people criticize about victorian england and maybe not all maybe with some legitimacy uh but maybe we've we've beaten the dead horse enough and it's time to to leave it alone and and go back like you know what's wrong with that it was nice it was nice back then it was nice 
I feel like that about America too, 1950s America. It's good mm-hmm. times. I I'm unapologetically nostalgic about that. And as I didn't <laughs> live there, I'm even nostalgic about Scotland. Yeah, I was about to and say. I, I didn't even I don't live in Scotland. You know who really hates the 1950s? Yeah. Trinity. Yeah, why is that? I don't really know. She gets angry though. Like she looks at pictures of 1950s fashion or architecture or anything related to the aesthetic of the 1950s or like 1950s shows anything anything 1950s and she just gets angry okay well i don't I'll, know why i under okay so i understand see this is the same thing the way we look at the 1950s and the way that the people in the 50s look back at victorian england um both have some merit to them and part of the reasons why we think we looked down on the 1950s um is I think, well, first of all, that was the age of Coca-Cola, and that was the time that Technicolor television was starting to be developed. That technology was being developed, so it wasn't very good. We were just moving, transitioning from black and white to color. And the first color photographs, I don't know when they came, but um, even though we had color photographs, it still wasn't very good, so most of the commercial advertising was still done by painting. And Coca-Cola was the biggest producer of that and so when we think of the 1950s we always think of coca-cola advertising Uh, like that's just our picture of what the past looks like Um, and so we imagine that's what every everyone looked like when i mean obviously that was was like uh part of it was just the discovery of technicolor technology and you know uh that that made people gravitate towards using that primarily in advertising. That doesn't necessarily mean everyone was wearing ridiculously ridiculous hairstyles and everything. And, you know, when you look at like, um, triple X root beer, which is just like hideous, it's the, you know, horrible. If you walk into that, it's like, it's so obviously meant to be retro meant to, you know, simulate the 1950s. Although it's like, doesn't even look anything like it. It's just like strewn with license plates everywhere. And it's, you know, I, I think it's, you know, way over the top. And so I'm not a fan of that kind of aesthetic at all. But, you know, you got to be able to separate those things, I think. Um, but in general, I, I like I like the idea of people, you know, like wearing wearing nice clothes is just kind of like normal, uh, you know, as opposed to sweatpants. There's something about that, which I which I think is just classy and, and cool. Uh, there are a couple things I want to point out here. I want to point out, first of all, the fact that you said very early on here that you first read that Chesterton quote as a, quote, very old young person yeah. in college. And now you're talking suspiciously, in a suspiciously concrete way about what the 1950s were actually like as opposed to how they are portrayed in advertising and television. So I'm a little concerned that maybe you're a time traveler or just uh drink a serum that would make you eternally young or something like that or you're a vampire and so you just haven't aged since the 1950s i'm a little concerned well are you are you saying i i I don't i don't really know what the 1950s were actually like and so uh that my, my my nostalgia about it is is largely in my imagination I'm not saying anything nearly that profound. I'm saying that you're talking as if you're a vampire. <laughs> That's the extent of my observation. Well, <laughs> a vampire? That's that's 
That that's that's going a bit. That's a, that's a bit of an imaginative leap there. I mean, well, if you would call me a historian or something. No, just if you had gotten bitten in the 1950s, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have aged since then. Oh. Oh, so you're saying that I'm a vampire in disguise that I'm hiding things. Yes. Oh. Yes. <clears throat> oh, well, c- couldn't I be some other ancient monster besides a vampire? Like, like what? A, I don't know. The doctor or something. I don't know. Someone cool. <laughs> someone. <laughs> uh. Actually, I think you... No, you could be the doctor. That would also fit the evidence because you'd still be a very old young person and you would have been able to mm-hmm. experience the 1950s whenever you want. So I'll accept that. You can be the doctor. Okay. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I've... I've... um, I've, I mean, there are more realistic versions. If you want a, a more realistic version of the, of the 1950s in Texas, you should watch Terrence, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. That's a really good movie. Um, I've heard, see, okay, I've heard really good things about that movie, and then I've heard people saying it makes no sense, and anyone who says it's good is pretending because they think they're supposed to understand it, or they're supposed to like it, but they actually don't understand it because nobody can understand it. But uh, it sounds that like sounds you're, you're like, falling into the it's good camp. <clears throat> that sounds like somebody who it, uh, is just feels insecure about their inability to understand things that may be true i mean i don't have an opinion because i've not seen it yet well i i I think there can be there's there's an argument i think it's actually very i mean okay well i guess we 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 talk about that later you know once you've actually watched it but yeah probably but it's actually i don't think people people think it's a lot more complicated than it actually is i don't think it's that complicated um it's so but but anyway that's a tangent what are we i mean everything is a tangent in this episode but (laughs) we were gonna talk about vampires today that was that was our initial plan Uh, is that why you brought that up the vampire it actually it isn't a segue it it wasn't a ten attempt at a segue but then the moment i said it i realized that it was accidentally the best segue of all time but then we didn't actually treat it like a segue so it's fine (laughs) okay well we can segue into that because we're gonna talk about we were gonna talk about vampires yeah you you had a question about that right yes i well sort of a question so we have an ongoing argument about how how redemptive is the story of twilight really yes because i'm sort of firmly in the camp that for all the the faults for all the flaws of twilight there's something in it that is redemptive and is uh that 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 redemptiveness is what makes people like it is what draws people to it whereas you think it's rotten to the core. <laughs> and yes, it's yes. Not redemptive. Um, maybe you should explain first uh, for our, for our listening audience because I've heard this before. Maybe you should explain why you think that Twilight is not redeemable, and then I will uh, argue against you. All right, all right. So first for the plot. So the plot is about. A 17-year-old <laughs> girl named Bella who falls in love with a 900-year-old 
blood-sucking monster uh, named Edward, who somehow is in high school. Because he doesn't <clears throat> this age. Is, this is, he, he somehow, why did he sneak into high school? What is he doing? He's lived through hundreds and hundreds of generations. He's decided he's going to sneak into high school. For some reason, give creepy looks. The Cullen family family has to move from place to place because if they stay too long, people get suspicious (laughs) and they have to enroll in a high school because people are going to be more suspicious if they're like 17 years old and they're not enrolled in the local high school. So it makes perfect sense. Uh, But he's... uh, Okay. Okay. It makes perfect sense. Let's accept that, that it makes perfect sense (laughs) somehow. Uh, Um... And uh, okay, and then and then Bella Bella discovers that he he's a vampire and 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 falls in love with him. I wait, I think I pretty much that's pretty much all I know about this this plot. And then there's also a werewolf, uh, and there's that a love true. triangle between the two of them. All right, you would be the first person who actually like uh, who who I know who who, who would defend Twilight <laughs> this this adamantly. So. I'm a little bit shocked here. I don't really know <laughs> what to say. Um, okay, but here's here's what I think about Twilight. Um, it seems to me pretty obvious that Twilight is is following the same mythological story as Beauty and the Beast. And in fact, it's so. I mean, like the main heroine's name is Bella, so like. There it is right there. So what is Beauty and the Beast about? Beauty and the Beast is about beauty who falls in love with, well, who, 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 who is engages in a relationship with a monster and somehow rescues the monster, rescues the man out of the monster. So she redeems the monster. That's what Beauty and the Beast is about. And when you look at like mythological stories from from a kind of a bird's eye view you can see that there's there's different kinds of mythological stories or hero and heroine myths depending on whether the protagonist is male or female so when you're dealing with a male protagonist you know a hero myth then we have the same kind of narrative direction except that the the events tend to be more external and action oriented for example you know the hero goes out and slays the dragon and then rescues the maiden from the dragon so those are all external things which makes fit, makes sense for like a, a a masculine landscape or a masculine story and then when you have a a, a female heroine then you actually have the same kind of heroic thing and so um and, you know, I think modern people might criticize that, like, archaic stories are always, you know, make the female figures passive. And I don't think that's true because in the, the female heroine myth, it's just it just happens differently. So what happens in the female heroine myth is that the, the heroine encounters a monster the same way the hero encounters a monster. The heroine encounters the monster and then she she is able to bring the man out of the monster so she rescues the man there's a man in distress except the man is the monster so it's a little bit more complex it's a little bit more psychological and there's a little bit um and that and that kind of makes sense but it's essentially the same story it's still a rescuing story and so i think that that's implicit in that's what beauty and the beast is about and then you know so the message of beauty and the beast is that a thing must be loved before it becomes lovable and you know that's what 
C.S. Lewis, how C.S. Lewis interpreted it. And I think that's a really important thing. And and so myths are important and myths are powerful things. Um, but we can't say that myths are powerful things without saying also that they're dangerous. I mean, otherwise, power, the word power has no meaning. And and if myths, if stories can also be dangerous, then we have to treat it like it's dangerous or else the word saying that it's dangerous doesn't have any meaning either. And so the what happens in the story then is going to be important because it tells us something about um, how we should act as human beings in the world. And we should tell a story that is fundamentally heroic and redemptive. I think that that, that should be an imperative thing. Um, is that Does that mean that all stories need to end happily? No. But when you're telling a mythology, a mythology or a meta narrative is something that's meant to encapsulate you know, the full breadth of human experience and all of reality. And if you're going to make a statement about that, then it, it should be something that fundamentally reflects the truth. All right, so now what happens when you get to Twilight? Twilight is the same plot. It's about beauty and the beast. But something happens in in Twilight that's fundamentally different from beauty and the beast. And that is um, Belle... Belle Beauty falls in love with the beast, and then instead of Beauty saving the man out of the beast, Beauty becomes the beast. That's what happens in Twilight. So Belle, Bella, uh, basically, she becomes a vampire too. And that's a very deliberate subversion of the kind of moral fabric which undergirded the original Beauty and the Beast. It's a deliberate inversion of that. It's the opposite of that. Instead of saying a, a, a monster can become a human, you're saying, well, well, why don't we just, you know, why would we want to be human? It, maybe it's better to be a monster. And the fact that it, that, that Twilight does that, I think, is, is a seriously problematic and has very negative implications on the young teenage female audience who sees it and consequently very detrimental consequences on on our culture as a whole so there's my one ac for you okay great uh so first of all as sort of a, a prelude a preamble um my i have not read the twilight books i about a year ago my boyfriend and I decided it would be funny to watch through all of the Twilight movies, and so we watched the first one, and we've been very slowly working our way through all of them, and I think we're about to watch the last one pretty soon. And I would like to just throw this out there. They are terrible movies. They're really, really bad. Um, and I'm sure the books are not good. So my defense of Twilight conceptually doesn't have anything to do with defending Twilight as a work of art because I don't think it's a particularly good work of art or it seems like it's not great writing uh, if the plot of the movies is any similar to the plot of the novels. So uh, for what it's worth, that's that's one thing. Um, I read Twilight thematically very different than you're reading it. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that Edward, so the the vampire that Bella falls in love with, he is part of a family of vampires called the Cullens. And the Cullens are all adopted, basically, by this one vampire who, his name is Dr. Cullen, and he is married. Um, And he, at one point, decided 
that he was no longer going to drink human blood. And he became a doctor. So the implicit do no harm, uh, Hippocratic oath of a doctor, that he's only going to help, that he's only going to heal wounds, he's not going to create them. So he goes around saving all of these vampires and uh, bringing them into his family, um, so adopting them. And it's all these vampires who are young, so they're turned when they're um, in their teenage years. So even though they get older, they still look like children. So he effectively just perpetually has all of these teenage children, even though they're all very old. And together, they've decided that they only drink animal blood because they have to to survive, but they're never going to drink human blood again. So right away, I think that the, the vampire that Bella meets and falls in love with is not supposed to be a monster. Well, he's already supposed to be something of a reformed monster. He's a monster who has a particular evil urge, which was forced upon him when he was turned. So that wasn't a choice. It's that he has this nature he can't control, that he can't... Well, he can control it. He just can't get rid of it. And he is intentionally keeping that nature under control. So Bella, meanwhile, as a character, is a really unassuming high school girl who isn't super popular. She's not necessarily, like, the prettiest girl at school. She doesn't have a whole lot going for her in terms of, uh, the, the sorts of things about her that might allure a man. <laughs> uh, but he is interested in her and falls very deeply in love with her to the point where he's concerned. Don't make faces. <laughs> I didn't make faces when you were talking. <laughs> um, to the point where uh, he will do almost anything and sacrifice almost anything in order to keep her safe. And that's uh, where the relationship between them begins, basically. So the tension there in the relationship, especially in the beginning, this becomes less of a big deal later on, is the fact that she knows, and this is sort of the most famous kind of melodramatic quote from Twilight, is the quote about, there are three things I knew about him. <laughs> I forget what the first thing is. The second one is, there would always be a part of him. Ed- first, 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 first Edward is a vampire. Second, there's a part of him which thirsted for my blood. And thirdly, I was deeply in love with him. Yes, exactly. So uh, the point of that quote is she's in love with him and she is aware of the fact that there is this thing in him that is an evil urge that is always going to be there. And yet the thing you left out when you were talking is that he's part of a particular family that has pledged not to give in to that evil urge. And here are the things that I would say about that. First of all, I don't think that that description is all that different from what being a human is like. To have an urge to do evil that can be controlled and can be overcome, but in this world, on Earth, can't be eradicated. And that's what Edward is struggling with. Um, And he's able to be and become a good person. And actually part of the evidence for that, I think, is a major plot point in the second book movie, I think. I don't remember. Okay, one of the movies uh, or one of the books. There's this whole plot point where um, 
Bella wants to be physically involved with Edward uh, without being married to him. And he says no and is very concerned about that idea and is very explicit about the fact that he wants that to be an expression of commitment, like of a marital commitment, that he doesn't want um, to have that kind of relationship with her outside of marriage. Which is supposed to indicate, and I think does in some sense indicate, the degree to which he is able to control um, animal or monstrous urges in order to do something that he believes is good. Because as a character, he's presented as someone who is deeply good and deeply capable of protecting people around him and doing good, selfless, heroic actions. And she is drawn to that because of the the goodness in his character, not because he is evil. Because he's not evil, he just has an evil urge. Uh, I agree that the fact that she turns into a vampire is a little problematic in the sense that it's, it is an inverse of the Beauty and the Beast story. It would be cooler if he somehow became not a vampire. Uh, but I do think it's worth noting just in the context of the story. First of all, Stephanie Meyer, I don't think, was thinking about the implications of that. And also, um, Edward doesn't want her to become a vampire. And the circumstances under which she actually gets turned are life or death circumstances. Either she's going to be a vampire or she's going to die. Um, and I think that's important, too. That it's not, the story doesn't present that transformation as a triumph of some kind, of the monstrous urge or of the monster in all of us uh, over Bella, who's this sweet, innocent girl. Actually, in a lot of cases, she's sort of the one who is trying to get Edward to do things that he knows probably are wrong or aren't that good for him. So her becoming a vampire isn't necessarily her changing for Edward, but maybe her demonstrating a monstrous urge that was always there. So it's her, uh, the story thematically or symbolically showing something that was always true, which is that Bella always had something of a monster inside her. And if you look at the story that way, I think really what Twilight is saying, if it's saying something deep and profound, which, you know, maybe it's not even, but if we're going to read it as saying anything about human nature, it seems like what it's saying is everyone has a, a monster urge in them. Whether or not that monster urge is displayed on the outside or not. And that we are capable of controlling and of overcoming that urge. Even if, as human beings, we can't eradicate it. We can't kill it. And the story doesn't go so far as to say, here's the solution that would kill it. Which is what Christianity would give us. It would give us um, a savior who ultimately is able to kill that sin nature uh, in the end. But Twilight, I think, doesn't present us with a totally inaccurate picture of what human nature is like and what human beings are like before that, before the end of things when that sin nature can really, can really get eradicated. So that would be my defense of Twilight as something that is not completely irredeemable. It's my one NC. Okay. Okay. Uh, you talk about 
you you talk about uh, the monstrous impulse as something that needs to be what was your phraseology was it either control killed or overcome or are those mm-hmm. different things are those the same thing uh i think controlled and overcome i'm using sort of as synonyms although they may be if i dug deeper mean something slightly different when i talk about a monstrous urge or i guess we could call it a sin nature when i talk about that being killed I'm referring to, uh, so like in The Great Divorce, the little reptile creature who has to be killed in order for the man to enter the kingdom of heaven properly. That's really what I mean. But that's the sort of thing I think that doesn't, that doesn't happen until we really get to the end of things. Uh, we always have a sin nature while we're here on Earth. And we can get better at both controlling and overcoming that sin nature, but we can't get rid of it. We can't eradicate it while we're alive. Which is, I guess, what I'm saying. That Twilight is a picture of that state of affairs, of having to control that. Or, over I mean, overcome it, become better at being a person who is not controlled by those urges, but that the urges themselves are never going to go away until uh, we are not on Earth anymore. Okay, so a couple things. You come back, you bring up the Great Divorce. So in the Great Divorce, there is a character who is... um, uh, There's a character in the Great Divorce. There's a man who takes a bus trip into heaven, and he has these visions of these creatures who are in hell... And they're walking around having these conversations with spirits in heaven. And, and one of them in the book is kind of an investigation of what of how the damned continually refuse to accept the grace of God in the face of joy and, and paradise. And so this character in The Great Divorce has a lizard on his shoulder and the lizard actually represents lust. And the the man is is trying to resist having the lizard killed. And he's having a conversation with an angel, and the angel says that the only way that you're going to get rid of this is to is to crush crush the lizard. But well, here's I think a part of the story here that is important to bring up. One of the things that the man is constantly saying is that it needs is that you can't kill it right away. It needs to be gradual. So he says, come on, let's like, let's do this slowly, incrementally. Let me go home and consult my doctor. I mean, it's satirical, but that's, exa- I mean, that's exactly what he says. He says, let me go home and consult my doctor. You know, and when I, I mean, when I watched the dramatization of The Great Divorce, when he said that line, people laughed. I mean, because it's laughable. It's ridiculous. You're going to go home and talk to your doctor about this. And, and then the angel says, the angel says, well, first he says, you know, like, let me go come back tomorrow. Give me a moment. And the angel says, this moment contains all moments. And you, you there is no later. If you leave now, you're leaving forever. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, and you may say, well, this is something that's supposed to happen, what, in some some other this is a this is a description of events of something that's happening far out and on the other side of paradise on the other side of death or something but i don't think that that's what c.s lewis wanted us to to read the great divorce in that way because he said you know in his preface that 
this book is actually a book about the here and now. I'm not actually trying to make a theological statement about the actual conditions of the afterlife. Um, the book was more a commentary on human nature now than it was later. And so the fact that he emphasizes the fact that this has to happen now, this has to happen today, is important and instructive. And I think that that not uh, admitting the fact that the process of sanctification is something that takes your entire life. Okay, I'll, I'll like I'll admit that that's that's a reality. That's part of that's part of um, the Christian narrative. But I also think that the Christian narrative or the individual journey of Christians is also catastrophic. It's, it's inextricably catastrophic. You can't take catas catastrophe out of it. And what I mean by that is that what happened on the cross was a catastrophe. Um, it was a catastrophe in the sense that it was, it was a moment in time. And, you know, G.K. Chesterton talked about the cross. The cross is an explosion. It's not a circle because it's like, you know, two lines intersecting that explode outward infinitely and so the idea that christianity is an explosion like it's it's a bang it's a big bang like that's what it is and 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 i think that that you see that happening in people's lives as well and you know we can take the the even the concept of salvation aside for a moment but this is something that is i think a true phenomenon in in a christian's journey and like Paul on the road to Damascus. I think that the way God interacts with us, if I, you know, if he interacts with us with us at all, is often going to be something that's startling and before we're ready, you know, he doesn't wait for us to be ready. Um, and so I think that, that it's fundamental to understanding that story of the great divorce. This, there, there is an element of finality Finality is actually a really big deal in Christianity. I mean, the central story, the most famous, one of the most famous words of Christ, it is finished. To die, it is finished. Um, I think that if we were in remiss, if we ignore that element of, of Christianity. So, again, you know, you're saying, one of the things you're saying is that, you know, we can't expect to entirely conquer our sins in this life and it's like yeah yeah that's true okay but what kind of story are we talking about here when we're talking about twilight well let me back up and say what kind of story are we talking about when we're talking about myths and that goes this goes back to my original my original argument um if you take a short story like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And that's that's a short story, and it's it's not a hopeful story. And it's like, well, I wouldn't expect that to be a hopeful story, but also it's a, it's a sliver of reality. That's not something that's claiming to be a statement about everything that there is. Um, it's not meant to be the full story. It's meant to be a portrait, a portrait of human sin, and that's that's fine. And so the fact that this story is about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is about being unable to control the monstrous impulse and ultimately, you know, maybe being overtaken by it. And the fact that that story doesn't end with hope really very explicitly, I don't think that's necessarily problematic. 
Okay, but when we're talking about a big story, a meta-narrative, and Christianity is a meta-narrative, then it has to end with it is finished. Um, I think that's essential. But so when we go back to Beauty and the Beast, you know, the fact that Beauty and the Beast ends fundamentally redemptively is making a big statement. It's making a big statement about the entelechy, the entelechy meaning the total, the telos, the telos, the end goal of man. That's what the, te the mythological story is about. And when you take the mythological story and you change the telos, you change the end state of man from being redeemed to being a monster, for me, that's, that's not just against the truth. That's, that's an anti-truth. It's the opposite of truth. A and so, like, you know, you can talk about whether Edward as a character has good, good qualities or bad qualities. It's like, well, uh, you know, I, it doesn't matter. It's how this story ends. Because you're using mythological characters and a mythological structure and you're moving in a direction that's fundamentally irredeemable. Okay. I have lots of things to say. Here's the first thing. So, the character in The Great Divorce, the little, the little reptile creature, is a representation of lust. And so... I think it is important, it's really important symbolically and thematically and lots of different ways that they specifically say the creature needs to be killed. And that has lots of different meanings. There are lots of different ways to talk about that as something that's true. And I think it is something that's true. But I think we could both agree that someone who struggles with lust, who becomes a Christian, that that doesn't becoming a christian or following christ doesn't kill the lust well right? of course no no i didn't and i didn't say that right so i just think it's important that edward is a vampire who has a thirst for human blood which is something he can't is part of his nature and it's not something he chose. It's something that is just true about him. But the choice he makes is not to drink human blood. Is not to do harm. And that's the choice that he makes. So I think that's actually analogous in some ways to someone who has desires, who struggles with lust, but makes a choice not to act on those desires. And that that choice is the more important thing. <laughs> and that that's part of the reality of sanctification and of living as a human being who has a sin nature. That there's something analogous uh, in, the, in the human who has a sin nature, but who can choose to act virtuously with the help of God. That's analogous to Edward the Vampire, who is a vampire who has chosen not to do harm even though there's something in his nature that wants him to do harm, that has an urge to do harm. So when I talk about monstrous urges, I don't think a monstrous urge is a sin because I think it's pretty clear that temptation is not sin and that temptation is part of having a sin nature. But 
the character of Edward is not a character who acts on those urges or acts on those desires. And so I don't think having those urges or having those desires is sinful. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is you were talking a lot about it being a story that there, there are stories that show a telos or, or the, the finale of the meta narrative. And I don't think Twilight in any stretch of the imagination is a depiction of a full meta narrative. I don't think it depicts the end or the beginning and the end of the story. Um, it reminds me a little bit maybe, except I think it maybe has more truth worked in. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a story like Waiting for Godot. Where Waiting for Godot, I think, says something true about people. And the thing I think that it says that is true is if, if there isn't a god, and if there's no moral center to the world, then everything is absurd. And everything is laughable, and there's no point in doing anything, and you're not going to do anything because your actions actually have no meaning and they don't propel you forward. And that, as a statement, is something that is true, even if it's a depiction of a tiny, tiny, tiny little portion of reality. And I don't think that a story needs to have the whole picture to be saying something true. So if the world of Twilight is telling us something about the best that humans can do without the saving power of God, I think there's something valuable about, valuable about that. Because if it's true, if, if overcoming continually, eternally, uh, because vampires are immortal, if overcoming your monstrous urges and not drinking human blood and not doing harm is something that you are committed to doing and that you are going to do eternally. That is the best he can do. That's the best anyone can do in that kind of world. And it's not a Christian world, so there's there's no end to that story. It doesn't depict a grand finale to the meta narrative, but I think it does, in some sense, accurately reflect a portion of the whole story, and that's what makes Twilight in some sense redemptive. It's not that it's all true, and of course, I think it's bad art, <laughs> I don't think it's well written, and I don't think the plot is good, and I think there's lots of really stupid dialogue, but at the same time, I don't think it's rotten to the core, because I think it is saying something accurate about human beings, even if it's not the whole story of how human beings really do overcome their sin nature or the monster urge that they have inside of them to tell people you have a monstrous urge and it can be fought against is inherently a true message even if it isn't the whole message well you know what this conversation makes me think of is um the greek myth about the sirens who was it who went on that voyage who told his soldiers odysseus to... odysseus yes okay so there's, you know, there's three ways to deal with temptation. First is, you know, you are a, uh, you 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 are like the um, the the sailors. They're going through the passage where the sirens are, and they put wax in their eyes, so they just they just shut their their they just plug their ears basically, so that they don't have to deal with the temptation in the first place. 
So that's one way you can deal with it. And the second way you deal with it is you're like Odysseus and you tie yourself to the to, to, to the bow of the ship so that you can listen to it so you can just take a peek, you know, and but you're tied up so that you won't give in to it. Um, so, well, that's kind of like the equivalent of like, well, I am an alcoholic, but I'll just take a sniff of it, uh, you know, and that maybe that will help me um, strengthen my willpower, you know, I'm just like, you know, I'll tie myself up, I'll put restraints on myself so I can... I can hear the siren call, but I'm, I'm not going to actually give in to it. So you can be like Odysseus. You can either put the wax in your eyes. Um, or you can be like Orpheus in the Jason and, and the Argonauts. And what Orpheus did was he played a song that was more beautiful than the siren song. Uh, so that's the, I would say, the three ways that you can deal with temptation. Now, the first one, I guess, is noble in some sense by putting restraints on yourself, but ultimately it's just like deliberately torturing yourself, torturing your soul. And then the second one is better, at least like you're deliberately walking away, you know, plugging your ears. You're not going to even like, you know, just walk away from the temptation. Um, but I think probably the third is the third is the best. You need to create something that's more beautiful, that's more meaningful, that's better than whatever the the, t the temptation is. And, you know, uh, what's Edward doing is, I would say, probably more akin to to Odysseus than it is to the, to the third one because, you know, he's he's giving, he's definitely taking a peek you know, he's like constantly in the presence of being tempted to do so by engaging in a romantic relationship with this 17-year-old. Uh, and and so he's it's a constant temptation, but he's very nobly tying his hands behind himself so that he isn't, you know, tempted to give in to it. So it's like... I guess in that sense, in the sense that Odysseus was a hero, that I guess that's something heroic about it. But um, ultimately, I don't think that people are going to be able to resist the temptation if they're trying to deal with it that way or trying to deal with any kind of addiction in that way. Um, so if that's your game plan for overcoming the monstrous impulse in my opinion, that's just something that's going to be doomed to failure. So the fact that he doesn't give in is probably an unrealistic reflection of human nature. Okay, well, two things. First of all, I guess you sort of answered this question in one way, but I'm curious what you would have, what you would have Edward Cullen do that is uh, more than what he's already doing. Go live far away from humans by himself somewhere. No, Is that what you would I would, recommend? No, I would have him be redeemed through love the same way that Okay, but the beast was. Sure. I mean, if you were and writing the story, that's end, what would happen. No. Yes, that's what would happen. If it doesn't end any other way, then I won't accept it. <laughs> but my so my point is, what I was saying earlier is it's not a complete picture of the truth, but I think that saying because this isn't a complete picture of every truth ever, because this isn't Beauty and the Beast, because it isn't the Bible, then 
it cannot possibly be telling us any portion of something true. I don't think, I don't think is the right way to look at it. And the other thing I was going to point out is that I think in the context of the story, at least what the story is trying to do, and because I don't think it's great art, I don't know how well it succeeds in this artistically, but I think something the story is trying to do is Edward's love for another human being, his love for Bella, is supposed to be, I think, akin to the the Orpheus song, the thing that is better. Because I think it's really important that Edward at no point ever wants her to be a vampire. And it would make his life easier if she was, right? It would be kind of an easy fix for his problem, which is that he uh, has a natural inherent thirst for human blood. That's just part of him being a vampire. But he doesn't want her to be a vampire because he wants her to remain what she is. <laughs> um, because he loves what she is and doesn't want her to experience the same difficulties that he experiences. And so that motivation, the motivation of love, is stronger than the monstrous urge. <laughs> and that is a way of overcoming for him, I think, and is in the story, I think, probably the primary way of him overcoming the urge to drink human blood, even though that's a thing he hasn't done for at least for a very long time. I don't... And it's been, you know, he gave it up a long time ago. Um, but now the the motivation of love that he has for another human being is, is strong enough that that uh, it makes him not want her to become a vampire, not want to hurt her in any way. Um, so yeah, I would I would say that that's more similar uh, thematically to the Orpheus method than it is to the Odysseus method in this case. Ah, oh, well, say what you want. <laughs> I will, thank you. <laughs> I have nothing more to say. I should put a survey or something up in the, the description for this episode and people can vote for whether or not they think Twilight has any redemptive qualities. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Let us know. And, uh, uh, in the, in our email, write, write to us, write to us. Let us know. Write to us listeners. Tell us who wins. <laughs> yeah. Is Edward a good guy or bad guy? Tune in next time, where we talk about... Silence, which I will read. Yeah. Soon. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes, we'll be be working on that, and we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. So, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I know you can see something inside. One part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more